Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates. And I'm Allison Camerata. This is CNN Tonight. More than 5,000 people celebrated on the White House lawn today when President Biden signed the Respect for Marriage Act with new federal protections for same-sex and interracial couples. It was a long road to get there, politically and personally, especially for one of our guests tonight. In a moment, we're going to speak to an LGBTQ activist who was in that crowd today, but who had to fight his own aunt a congresswoman from Missouri, after she cried on the House floor begging her colleagues not to vote for this gay marriage protection. Plus, we'll talk to a mother who's living a true nightmare, suddenly losing her 17-year-old son, an Eagle Scout, a soccer player, the star of his high school musical, to the fentanyl epidemic. It's happening to thousands of families all across this country. And the shocking thing is, many people don't even know that they're taking fentanyl. They're not buying it in some dark alley. It's right there, available on social media. The way that particular story happened, Laura, is so it's heartbreaking. Awful. And uh, I think other parents need to know about Absolutely. This. Also, we're tracking a powerful winter storm. It's threatening about 21 million people from Texas to Mississippi. So we're going to tell you where it's headed so you can be prepared. Okay, but as we said, it was a historic moment for same-sex couples today. But this victory lap was not a layup. Mm. Roughly 200 Republican lawmakers voted against it, and some really did not want to provide protections for same-sex and interracial couples. That includes Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler of Missouri. Here she is begging her colleagues last week to vote against it. Protect religious liberty, protect people of faith, and protect Americans who believe in the true meaning of marriage. I hope and pray that my colleagues will find the courage to join me in opposing this misguided and this dangerous bill. And I yield back. Okay, now that congresswoman's nephew, Andrew Hartzler, was so upset by his aunt's speech, he took to social media to respond. Today, a United States congresswoman, my aunt Vicky, started crying because gay people like me can get married. So despite coming out to my aunt this past February, I guess she's still just as much as a homophobe. And Andrew Hartzler joins us now. Good evening, Andrew. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So what was it like to be at the White House today, particularly in that context, knowing that there were, you know, a, a large portion of Republicans who didn't want to see this happen, including your aunt? Yeah, um, it was honestly quite emotional. Um, so I remember whenever I first got there, there was a couple standing right in front of me in the crowd, and they had been married for over 20 years. And I introduced myself to them, and then in front of them was one of their mothers. And it kind of hit me at that time that, wow, there are families out there in the world, and there are people who will never see their families support 
how they love and who they love. And the implications of that are ultimately so far-reaching that they will affect someone for the rest of their life. Um, but my aunt, um, my aunt Vicky, what she said on the house floor was really disturbing. And that type of negative rhetoric that she used, it um, basically perpetrates people who want to harm LGBTQ people, mm. and they're empowered to harm us by rhetoric like my aunt. And, well, I mean, Andrew, let me just stop you there, because she wasn't yeah. using violent rhetoric. She was so emotional. She, it was so, it sounded um, devastating for her. Do you understand why your aunt feels so emotional about this? Um, I mean, it wasn't violent and like you said it was emotional but referring to lgbtq people as um a disrespect to marriage or as a danger that portrays the idea that lgbtq people are harmful to society and what she was doing was weaponizing her own religion and framing queer people as a threat to that religion and Andrew, have you had conversations with her? I mean, I'm just curious about the family dynamic because you, I've read that you, you at one time were very close to her. And yeah. so what, ha- and you came out to her. And so yeah. what have those conversations been like in your family? Um, well, they, often I've been met with uh, the idea of love the sinner, hate the sin, which um, of evangelical Christians, they kind of cling to that type of phrase, but um, really, regardless of any family drama that I thought would be brought up by me making this TikTok, it was worth it because um, the people that were seeing my aunt, especially young people, like I was envisioning myself as a young person as before I was able to come out to my aunt because I was still under the guidance and the support and the care of my parents. Um, So I kind of just had to agree and bite my tongue. And I remember often like Googling Vicky Hartzler gay and seeing what she was saying about us that week. So whenever she put this out into the world, I felt really compelled to make a response to it so that other young people who were in my same shoes when I was young would hopefully not only see my, my aunt's response, but see mine in that regardless of whatever hateful rhetoric or dangerous rhetoric, basically implying that queer people are inherently bad yeah. and wrong, yeah. that they would know that they were okay. And Andrew, um, just about your personal history, in high school, you were subjected to conversion therapy. What was that like? Yeah, so I came out to my parents when I was 14 and they didn't take it well. They ultimately um, sent me to an inpatient conversion therapy in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then after that, I spent multiple days of the week from freshman year to senior year of high school seeing the same conversion therapist in Kansas City. And what really changed my mind about my aunt was when I was a sophomore in college, Um, I remember very vividly, I Googled that same phrase that I often would about my aunt, and up came this article from the Huffington Post, and it said, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler hosts conversion therapy group at the Capitol. And I look at the photo, 
And in that photo was the very conversion therapist who I had spent hours upon hours of my life with that I attributed so much trauma to. And at that point, I was like, I accept that this is my family member, but the harm that is being done like directly to me and ultimately unto other members of my community far outweighs any relational ties. And, and, and so, Andrew, ultimately, what was it like today? I mean, after all, everything you've been through and, and your family has been through, what was it like today to know that this happened? Yeah, it was really emotional. Um, and props to the Biden administration. They, they did a great job with it. Um, like, there was several music sets. They had Sam Smith come up and play Stay With Me, which is a very, like, slow, kind of moody song. So I kind of felt like they were trying to get us all in a certain type of, like, sobby mood because by the end of it, I was, I was crying. Um, but it was, it was part happy tears, part like, wow, this is seeing progress in action. And this is historic, but also it's progress, but it doesn't mean that it's the end of progress. There's so much further that we have to go. Yeah. Um, and because people are still being harmed. And part of that is from religious exemptions, which there's a lot of that in this bill. And we'll get to that too. But if you don't cry at Sam Smith, I don't know. I don't know (laughs) that person. Then you're not fully human. Um, Well, Andrew, uh, thanks so much for sharing your story. I know it's not always easy to talk about family members, and we really appreciate um, hearing how you got there today. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm sure Sam Smith is thrilled, knowing that he was was saying the vibe for everyone in that moment. (laughs) But can I just say, I, I cannot believe that we have conversion therapy mm-hmm. in this country or in this world. I mean, just hearing that for so many people, thinking about the generational shift. I mean, President Biden back in 2012, it was astounding news to hear him make, well, make this comment that made his, you know, obviously the president he was under, President Barack Obama, come out several days later. But just think of how striking it was in 2012 for him to say this and now this full arc. I am absolutely comfortable with the fact that men marrying men, women marrying women, and heterosexual men and women marrying women are entitled to the same exact rights, all the civil rights, all the civil liberties. And quite frankly, I don't see much of a distinction uh, beyond that. We want to talk about all this with our panel. We've got the former Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, CNN political commentator, Essie Cup, and Christine Quinn, former New York City Council speaker. I mean, to that point, Christine, think about this. That was 2012. Mm-hmm. Here we are 10 years later, and he is signing this into law. Tell me about the significance of this. Well, it's, it's, it's remarkable. You know, uh, my wife and I have been together 20 years just passed in in September and we got married in 2012. And to think about what it was like when we first met. And I remember talking about should we have a ceremony? Should we have a party even though it didn't quote unquote mean anything? But then to be able to really get married by in that that time Judge Judith Kay and to have we've there since passed, but both of our fathers walk us down the aisle and we happen to be two women who lost our mothers when we were teenagers. You can't describe the impact of that. And on until laws like this are passed and until the court ruled, you had this exclusion that LGBTQ people were prevented from being married. And that's really having a poison in our laws. And what does poison do? It spreads. And now 
President Biden is taking more of that poison out and sending a message that Kim and I are just as good as he and Dr. Biden, and that will cause change and reduce hate. Mm. And so, Essie, as I mentioned to Andrew, there are 200 Republicans in the Senate and the House voted against it, but some didn't. It was bipartisan. And so, I mean, we have come a long way since 2012, even. Um, the silver line actually today made me really sad. Um, the silver lining was that you had some Republican support. But, you know, I was at CNN in D.C. at 2015 at the Obergefell um, ruling. And I had been going to, you know, comment on whatever the court was going to say for months, not knowing when it was going to come down. And it came down that day and I was real emotional because I've supported gay rights longer than most Democrats I know. And I saw the people on the screen that day and they were friends and they were people who I knew just wanted the same things I had. Dignity, respect, rights. And I was really thrilled and I thought, well, that's that. And to see Roe overturned and then Clarence Thomas's Thomas's comments about maybe overturning interracial marriage and gay marriage too, and to see Republicans kind of roll with that made me really sad that this was needed today. I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it was codified. But I don't know that we progressed as much as I thought we had that July day in 2017. For sure. I mean, there's always steps forward and there's steps backward. And I I know you thought it was going to be a full forward march. I did. I totally get that. I did. And to that point, I mean, we had a conversation with with Mr. Obergefell recently Mm. about the idea of this was not the pure codification as the Supreme Court has ruled. And there was some tension about whether it had gone far enough, the idea of having to still respect other states. If that other state essentially said that it was not valid, you, you could marry someplace else. And it had to be then reciprocity. But to know you had to leave your state, possibly, to get married, to have the same rights others people, people have had, it's stunning. I wonder how you measure this progress in the sense of, it, it might feel incremental, but in the grand bureaucratic scheme of things, how do you judge it? Oh, well, I, I count the number of Republican senators who voted for this as a measuring stick in line with the fact that almost 70 percent of Americans are for same-sex marriage. So 12 Republican senators, including Mitt Romney and, and many others, decided that uh, that this was an issue that the American people had moved past. Some of them did so on principle. They said, look, I, I may or may not personally uh, before this, but I, I think Americans should have this right and recognition. A- and that coalition gives me some hope. I mean, uh, the, the fact is we're such a polarized country right now that if you can get 12 Republican senators on board with, with this kind of act, uh, I think that that's the energy that we should be trying to build on because there are Republicans who are on the right side of history on this. Is that a high enough bar? Mm. You know, look, I think uh, today, obviously, this is celebratory. It's a day we need to celebrate. But you can be grateful and not satisfied Mm. at the same time. And that's where I am. I am very Mm. grateful to the president for what he did today and what he did as vice president. And but I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied until there's protections full in every state and and that I'm not satisfied until there is no more conversion therapy. In Mm -hmm. some states, insurance pays for conversion therapy. Unbelievable. I mean, how hard is it to get your regular therapy covered? And it's not, and it doesn't work, by the way. It it hurts. (laughs) Of course. It hurts. I mean, not only does it hurt, as we just heard from Andrew, but if you're, if insurance companies want to pay for efficacy and for things that actually work, it's curious. Absolutely. Absolutely. are are paying for that. And on that point, I mean, you raised with him the idea of 
the violence versus nonviolence distinction. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that she wasn't calling for injury or harm physically to be done to somebody didn't undermine the idea that there was a violence, an attack, an assault on one's dignity, on one's... And he recognized, and you, you mm-hmm. questioned about that, but just thinking about how we have to redefine the way in which we judge violence in Well, America I mean, he was saying... I was drawing the distinction between violence and just some speech that... that oh, I know. Right, yeah. but he was saying that it's still dangerous. He felt that it's still it's dangerous, dangerous, even if it's not officially violent. Yeah. It, it, and it's particularly dangerous because when people who are in positions of authority, a congresswoman, speak out so emotionally, creating an other from themselves... There are people mm-hmm. in society who have violent tendencies. Mm. They use that as an affirmation that their the violence that they want to perpetrate is okay and it moves them forward. Or that their fear is justified. Yes. It's mirrored back, right? Someone is just as afraid of these people as I am and so desperate to keep this progress from happening as I am. And my concern is that when are these communities going to feel like they can relax mm-hmm. and like these rights are for good? forever and not going to be pulled back by an activist court or some president that doesn't like it or a Congress that's um, imbalanced. When do you get to relax? Um, I hope today was a step in that direction. Friends, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. All right. So time is running out for the January 6th committee, but they've just decided to hold one last public hearing. What more do they have to reveal? We'll discuss. The January 6th committee announcing they'll hold one last hearing next week on Monday because they say they have a few last Ooh. important things to reveal to the public. The way you said it made, me, really, it made me lean I, in. I was I'm, like, what does she know? What's nothing. being said? Is what, not, nothing. <laughs> but we are going to discuss what they've revealed a little bit of. Well, here to talk to us and talk about what that might be. Andrew Yang, all CNN political analyst. Estad Herndon, excuse me, Estad, and SC Cup. I don't know anything either. Well, well, I'm gonna. We're still gonna talk about it because you know why. I want to know what we did not hear in the last moments of the different hearing. We've seen televised hearings before, right? But the idea now, instead of thinking about what happened to Jenny Thomas's mm-hmm. conversation, her testimony, but a lot of these people had these deals made, right, about what would be aired or not aired. I'm wondering if they are going to, do you think, have a lot of that included? Yeah, I think that's the big question. We know that the committee went down many roads that we have not seen kind of the full fruition of what they were able to dig up. But the problem is we don't think that that's all going to come out in this one hearing. What we do know is that they will do a kind of journalistic accounting, a, a, a record, a summary that will have all of that information in there. And the biggest clues might come in the footnotes. It might mm. come in, in some of the documents we get from that rather than what is televised in the hearing. But I also think that the committee wants to do a kind of political victory lap. I mean, they were part of a Democratic effort to cast Republicans as extremists, and that kind of worked in the midterms. And so I, I really think that we're going to see kind of the official business of what they're going to put out, but also the kind of unofficial business of continuing to highlight the threat to democracy that they tried to do over the past year. And see, I think it has to be a little juicier than that. And the reason yeah. I say that is because we know that they've had help from some Hollywood hands, uh, right. or yeah, uh, I guess I should say broadcast hands. And so they have been pretty PR savvy throughout yes, all this. Very. So we thought they weren't going to hold any more hearings. So mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that they're holding one last one, doesn't it mean that they have some, not bombshell, I think that's overused, but mm. some juicy nugget that they want the public to see? I or think, they better have. I think you're right. Anything. And I agree with you. They do not like to disappoint. 
And so, I mean, they drum up a lot of interest and then they usually deliver. I will expect that as well next week. But I also think just to be a little political about it, too, you know, it's December. The next Congress is going to get sworn in. Republicans have already promised to investigate the investigations and throw the book at these people. I think they want, want one more pass. One last little reminder before everyone leaves for holiday vacation that this stuff was real. This happened. It's bad. It's still dangerous. And this investigation was worth it before the next Congress gets their say. Or even before the vacation, I mean, before, for example, Kinzinger or Liz Cheney say goodbye to Congress. I mean, they have nothing Mm -hmm. to lose. If you're Congresswoman Liz Cheney in particular and you have been censored by your party in Wyoming, you're no longer a member of Congress, you know, there's the idea of she can just go all out and and hammer the point again, this is a continuing threat. Yeah, if you have an opportunity to extend and reinforce a narrative, you probably take it. And of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump, eight did not make it back, Mm. uh, including Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, Uh, some of them didn't run, but many of them lost in in their primary. And so one of the most interesting questions that's to be answered is is what is the political destination or future or direction for uh, Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney? Because there's talk about them challenging Trump in a Republican primary. There's talk about them uh, doing some kind of nonprofit uh, organizational effort. But they represent a very significant number of moderate Republicans who are uncomfortable with Trumpism and are looking for some kind of home. Um, Here is how uh, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren explained what they are going to tell us all on Monday. There's no live interviews, but there's a lot of information that we, and and evidence that we compiled that we were unable to uh, lay out during our hearings. Uh, Some of that may be touched on on Monday, All of it will be touched on either in the report or, I think even more importantly, the publication of the committee records that will follow the report. So it said maybe they're just drumming up interest for the report, which comes out on Wednesday. Maybe they're just reminding people, okay, report coming. I mean, that's what I hear from that, and that's what I've heard from some folks. I mean, I don't think that means that we don't get anything at this public hearing. To your point, there definitely has been a kind of media intention around the committee that I expect them to follow through on. But certainly, they are pointing to that evidence, that written report, as where we're going to see the full kind of documenting of what the committee was able to do. And to your point, this is coming ahead of a Republican Congress that they know is going to roll some of this back. And so I think they're going to really point eyes at that report to say the, the, the fullness of what we are able to put together is here, no matter what comes next. And Congressman Liz Cheney has, it has been saying that they're going to reveal, at least in the report, which I view this hearing as a way of like drawing people in, but also telling them to where, where to look, including about members of Congress who did not comply with their subpoenas and what information there. But as this is wrapping up, you've got DOJ who are now picking up essentially where they left off. And you even have interest now about accessing Congressman Scott Perry's texts. And he did vote, I believe, in favor of um, of, overturning. of overturning. So this is somebody he's, they're interested in. Is it, does it strike you as odd that there is a specific congress, congressman now who's being focused on by DOJ? No, because I've been following the focus on Scott Perry and everything he did to try and get um, someone new into the DOJ to try and get um, this election overturned, the furious texts to Mark Meadows. I mean, there's a lot we've already learned. 
And I think there's more we have to learn. He's been a key figure in this whole um, sordid saga. Um, someone I think a lot of people hadn't heard about or knew of before this um, came up. He was really, it seems, pretty involved. We need to know more. Mm. Well, we'll see. And I'm sure on Monday we'll all be tuning in. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Yes. Thank you. The script was good. Good job. Good, guys. Next time, get a little more enthusiastic about it. We also know that we're all watching something else. And you mentioned the word sordid and what's been happening and the tragedy, not just of things in terms of our democracy, but what's happening to people of the United States of America. And sadly, there is a tragic and deadly toll among America's teens in particular from fentanyl. And often those teens are not even aware of what they're even taking. Well, now we have lawmakers in California who are trying to tackle the problem head on. As America's opioid crisis continues, fentanyl is taking a horrific toll on teenagers. This week, both Democratic and Republican California lawmakers proposing legislation that would make Narcan available in all state public schools. Legislation in the assembly sponsored by a lawmaker from Rockland, California, whose neighbor, Zach Didier, died in 2017 of a fentanyl overdose after taking what he thought was a Percocet pill. Bought through a dealer he met on Snapchat. Now I want to bring in Zach's mother, Laura Didier, who is also the outreach coordinator for Song for Charlie, which aims to raise awareness about the dangers of fentanyl pills. Laura, I'm so sad to meet you this way and sorry for your loss, but grateful as a parent that you are sharing the story of your son and have engaged in such tremendous outreach to get this story out. It's been nearly two years. It's been nearly two years since you lost your son. And I'm, I, I want to know initially what you want people to know about what happened to Zach. Well, the bottom line is this crisis can really impact any family. Uh, just to update the introduction, it was 2020. Uh, when I lost Zach, he was 17 years old. So we are approaching the two-year mark. It was two days after Christmas of 2020, and we were blindsided. We had never heard of this crisis and these counterfeit pills, and it is really information that we need to share with all families, all young people, that this, that this risk is out there. And on that point, and my apologies that that date was wrong, the least we can do is get it right in honor of your son. So my apologies to you, Lara. Um, when you think about this happening in your family, I mean, your son was a straight-A student. He was an Eagle Scout. He was in musicals. And you talk about the idea of, look, if your child has a smartphone, if they go to the mall, if they are out in the world, they are at risk. Can you talk to us about how there is no identifiable group where they are somehow safe from this pan from this epidemic, really. It, that's exactly right. I mean, we as uh, co-parents, you know, my ex and I were very plugged in with our kids. Zach was our youngest of three. We had every drug conversation with him that we knew about, you know, around other substances that we thought he might be exposed to as a high school student. Um, he was not uh, struggling with any kind of a substance use disorder. He was living an incredible life, just a wonderful young man. And we just 
couldn't have foreseen this for him from the time he had first decided to experiment with what was sold to him as a Percocet pill um, until the time he passed away. It was 48 hour time frame. Wow. You know, parents certainly can't see red flags in that amount of time. Um, he had tried one pill on Christmas Eve that must not have had much fentanyl in it. And the sinister nature of these pills is you, you don't know from one pill to the next. And so he thought he would try one more Percocet pill on December 26th. And on the 27th, he never woke up. Oh, my goodness. And just thinking about how this is impacting children and how the numbers. I mean, first of all, according to the State Department of Health, there were only, and I hate to even use the word only in conjunction, but only 82 fentanyl deaths in 2012 compared now to more than 5,700 last year alone. And you've got the age group, more than 200 occurring for those between the ages of 15 and 19 years old. And I understand um, Congressman, California Assembly Bill number 19 has now been introduced to try to get Narcan available in schools. It's been inspired by your son. You know the Assemblyman, Joe Patterson, who introduced this bill. Can you talk to us about why you think this is the prudent course to have this available? Certainly. And uh, tragically, I, ca I only came to know Assemblyman Patterson after losing my son. Uh, I was unaware that, you know, that we lived in the same community. So he had heard about Zach's tragic death. And and then I had reached out to him. He was at that point on the city council about becoming a part of awareness efforts in our community. And he vowed to me if he had if he did win his election for assembly, that fentanyl was going to be his first priority. Um, and I think it's very important. I've now spoken in um, so many high school. I've lost count how many high schools since the beginning of the school year. Talking to about 30,000 plus high school kids since the be beginning of the school year. And on one of the campuses, uh, a, a teacher there had said they had already had to administer Narcan to multiple students on their campus. It just doesn't make sense not to have them. Most, a, a lot, I should say, of districts are already doing it on their own. Um, but it really should be mandated. It's it's a very important medication to have, just like you would have a defibrillator or you would have a fire extinguisher on your campus. Laura, thank you for sharing and for making us aware. And even by coming on tonight and talking about your son's experience, your family's personal journey, you've saved lives, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I, really agree. I can totally applaud her because yeah. obviously it is, uh, I can only imagine how hard it is to talk about mm. that day after day, but I didn't know yeah. about this. I'm in the news business. I didn't know that fentanyl was being disguised as Percocet pills. A lot of people are on Percocet for, you know, pain, relief mm. of some kind or another. And so that is a huge um, public service mm -hmm. that she's doing. And it does, it is going to make me have different conversations with my kids now. And about what you're looking at for social media as well, Snapchat and the like. I mean, just the idea of, you know, you think you are focused and honing in on what are the dangers and what conversations are happening. And you think, okay, I checked off that list. But then you realize the availability. You realize the way and the methods people are able to really target our children. And yeah, it's but I don't understand why they're targeting our children. Because mm. if you're killing children, then you're not increasing your... Uh, your buyers, but we're going to talk about that. What's the, the solution? So how do we stop the fentanyl epidemic? We're going to discuss that next with Solutions.
Laura, thank you so much for taking Thanks the time so. to be here today. I really appreciate it. I'm so sorry. I mean, to know that for the better part of two years as well, people have been, you know, so distancing and have been out of school and, and to know that um, just the idea of what you've had to endure in that capacity, waiting to share and waiting to help other families as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so important to get the message out. Uh, so families know the conversations to have. And I heard the little bit at the end there and really what, why they're reaching out to the young kids is to get them addicted. Yeah, It's to get them hooked on these, these products coming back for more. And tragically, the collateral damage are young people like my son. And, yeah. you know, we really need to work together as a country across the aisle to address this crisis. And I'm just trying to do my small part here in California. And my son was awesome. He's, he seems incredible, Laura. I mean, I, everything that I've read about Zach, he's the ideal child. He's the, the, he's the son that we all want. I mean, the, the star of the he musical, was, all of that right. stuff. It's just, it, I so feel for you because, you know, obviously we put all this energy into making our kids good kids in the space, in the space of 48 hours, you know, because of not knowing about this to have this loss is just, it's, um, it's so mind blowing for all of us, even who hear the story. It is. And I'm not alone. I'm not unique. Zach's story is not unique and, um, it's happening a lot. Yeah, it really is. Well, Laura, thank you for sharing. I'm sorry. We're thinking of you and your family, especially now it's a difficult time for many reasons. And I, I'm, I'm very sorry. I appreciate it very much deeply. Thank you. Thanks, Thank Laura. you. As a mother of two little kids, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. We're back with more on the opioid crisis in America. Nearly 108,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2021. Two-thirds of those involved fentanyl or other synthetic opioids. That's up 15% from the year before. So how are these drugs getting to so many Americans? We're joined now by senior national security analyst Juliet Kayam and Washington Post reporter Nick Miroff, who is part of the Washington Post's new seven-part investigation into the fentanyl crisis in this country. I want to begin with you, um, Juliet, because yeah. we've been sitting here talking and, of course, speaking with a parent who has lost her son. And there, it's illustrative, really, of so many parents across this country and people who have lost their lives. The availability, the idea of how pervasive this is, really is a overall health and national security risk, frankly. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a border issue. Uh, and it's a synthetic drug, so you're not looking for poppy seed fields or, or you're not looking for anything, essentially. It is, it's purely chemical-based, could be made in labs. So there's three ways to target this, and none of them are easy. You have a supply chain issue, whether it, it's uh, with materials that begin in China that are then, then get to Mexico through cargo, then made in Mexico, come over our border. Uh, those are all challenges, and, uh, and they have to be addressed in different ways, whether it's postal or border crossing. Uh, the second, you have the people who are part of, of this enterprise, this, this sort of economic enterprise for them. Uh, we used to have a philosophy in the drug uh, trade or, or, or in, in, in drug enforcement uh, that you go after uh, uh, HVTs. We call them high-value targets. That's completely shifted in the last two years. You go after the cartels. Uh, you go after anyone who's part of that entity, not just the high-value targets. And then the third, of course, you, we always have to talk about demand. Uh, the United States... Uh, uh, 
whether they know it or not, whether kids are taking it willingly or not, uh, the demand is creating the supply. So that is the community outreach. That's parents like Laura, you had on before, educating people to what the harm is. It's working with police departments uh, and getting the information out there and, and finding out what's going on on the streets of America. It took, it took too long for us to figure out what a crisis this was. Yeah, and I do want to talk about what else can be done at the border. But yeah. Nick, first, I just want you to explain why, how this works. Because that story, uh, Laura just interviewed the woman, Laura, whose son, Zach, was this ideal Ooh. kid. He um, ordered on Snapchat, he met somebody on Snapchat and got a Percocet pill, which was actually fentanyl. I don't understand why are dealers disguising fentanyl as a Percocet pill? How does it help their business to kill teenagers the first time or the second time they try it? That doesn't seem like a good business model. Why are they disguising it as these other things? Well, they're not killing all the, the, the drug users who, who, who take these pills, um, but the pills are extremely dangerous. And the reason they're doing it is, is profits and greed. Um, the, the price of these fentanyl pills is incredibly low. The Mexican cartels are churning them out at an industrial scale and flooding them across the border. And part of reporting this series, we found out that the wholesale price of one of these fake uh, Percocet or fake oxycodone pills, the wholesale price per pill right now in Arizona is down to about 50 cents. Um, that, that pill will, sit, will retail on the streets, uh, say in Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, for only 4 or $5. So dealers who are looking to, to make a buck or who are looking to spike the cocaine or meth or whatever other drug they're selling, they will take some fentanyl and they'll put it in there to try to get their customers hooked um, and to try to deliver a more potent high. And, and tragically, uh, they're, they're killing some of their, their customers. We just look at that. I mean, this figure on the bottom of the screen. I mean, just, it's it is heart stopping to think about the leading cause of death for Americans between 18 and 49 is fentanyl. I mean, Juliet, yes. thinking about this and just the the what is that that range in age number one, but also the mm-hmm. idea we hear about fentanyl oftentimes, obviously in great reports like you have um, in Washington Post and thinking about the seven part series, mm-hmm. but also Juliet in politics. The conversation comes around. Mm-hmm. Border. It was discussion in Arizona. It was conflating with conversations around increase in crime, about border security. It's been a topic that's been politicized heavily. In fact, just listen, listen to the way it's been talked about, including around um, Mayorkas. Here it is. Yeah. I'm May- Mayorkas's watch. More than 14,000 pounds of fentanyl was seized in fiscal year 2022 at our southern border. That is an all-time record high. Over 100,000 people dying of fentanyl that's come across our southern border? This, is, this has got to stop. These cartels have also smuggled illegal, deadly drugs like fentanyl over our southern border and are killing thousands of Americans each and every day. For two years, Mayorkas has sat idly by and done Nothing. Now, Juliet, when you hear that, that a lot of the focus on the theme was the southern border. Help us understand, is that the primary source of where fentanyl is coming from? Is that misleading or sincere? Well, honestly, I mean, 
they, I don't want to get too political, but they have some nerve. I mean, you know, for four years, the entire border enforcement was focused on a wall uh, uh, to stop people uh, during the Trump administration, to stop people from coming in. Uh, the danger was 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 elsewhere. Uh, as we now know, it was coming through uh, a variety of means. First of all, we, China's not out of the picture. China's uh, synthetic drug uh, manufacturing or, or synth- synthetic material manufacturing makes its way to Mexico. So there's an issue about China and its enforcement. It's getting to Mexico through ship, plane, uh, and postal. Uh, It then gets to Mexico. So border enforcement for four years during the Trump administration was focused on a wall. It was the wrong threat. Uh, And so uh, then when Biden comes in, that movement begins to shift as there then begins to be, you know, sort of greater drug enforcement with the DEA. And Milgram is now in charge of it. She's focus on the cartel issue. So it's hard for me to sort of show any sympathy about what what the department and what our border enforcement inherited. I hear you, Julia, but but, I'm sorry to interrupt, but we're just running out of time. What's the solution? I mean, what do they need to do at the border? Since obviously, as we said, it's the number one killer of young people. You're not going to, honestly, you're not going to stop it at the border. You got to stop it at manufacturing. It is just, it's too, because it's dual use. You can bring it in too easily. You can stop it at the border with luck or intelligence service. You've got to stop both the manufacturing and the supply chain, and we've got to focus on the demand. To view the border as our solution is not going to work. You've got a million people legally crossing that border every week. Uh, to, to be able to stop it at the border is the wrong focus. So Mayorkas is trying to capture what he can, but it's both a, it's a supply and a demand challenge, not a not a border challenge. So I don't I think politicians who make it a border issue are looking at the at the wrong place. Nick, I'll give you the final word here, your reporting is consistent with that. You have this long series about this very notion about ways to tackle the issue. Is that what you're finding as well? Well, I think you have to stop it wherever you can, and that includes the border. So one of the things that the administration is, the Biden administration is doing now is trying to roll out more sophisticated scanning technology to increase the percentage of vehicles that, that, they, that they scan. But that, that effort is years behind. And in the meantime, they're simply inundated with, with cheap fentanyl coming across the southern border, um, but you, you, yes, you have to, you have to cut off the precursor chemicals. You have to intercept it at the border. You have to seize it on the streets of the United States. You have to reduce demand. You have to do all of the above. Wow. Yeah. Thank you both for your expertise. Really appreciate having Thank this you. conversation. Thank you. Okay. Meanwhile, there's a huge storm system sweeping across the country, leaving tornadoes and blizzard conditions in its wake. Where it's headed next, we'll tell you in a moment. It's going back up. Middle of the country getting walloped by severe winter storms, blizzard conditions hitting parts of Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, and Nebraska. You can see the video there. Oh, my goodness. Um, Some areas could get up to two feet of snow. It's all part of a giant winter storm system that's allowing, it's also spawning tornadoes across Oklahoma, Texas, and also Louisiana. The National Weather Service confirming at least five tornadoes in Texas. And now... A tornado watches up for Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi. CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar is here in the Weather Center. Allison, this is a huge storm. I mean, it's crawling across the entire country. It's got damage in the south. How bad is this threat? 
Right, this has been a pretty impressive storm, even from the very beginning when it was making its way into the West Coast, and it just keeps basically crawling across the country over the next couple of days. So here's a look at the storm. Again, you can see all of that white up there where we've got the snow in the northern tier. The purple color up here indicates that mix. You're getting a little bit of ice and freezing rain, then rain down to the south, and again, the severe component is really focused closer to the Gulf Coast. These red boxes here, that's where we have tornado watches in effect. Now, one of them is set to expire here in about five minutes. That will include Shreveport, but some new ones have been added on, kind of expanding that area out to the east, and those will not expire until about 2 to 4 a.m. overnight tonight. So do make sure you have a way to get those emergency alerts through the overnight hours because we do have three active tornado warnings as of this point in time, and they've been off and on throughout the evening. You've also got a couple of severe thunderstorm warnings as well. Here's a look at where the severe storms are expected to be starting now and then continuing through tomorrow. You can see it still includes Louisiana and areas of Mississippi, but then begins to spread east into areas of Alabama, portions of western Florida. So all of these areas still having the potential for a few strong tornadoes, damaging winds, as well as hail. Here's a look at that storm, though. It will continue to make its way across the east in the coming days, eventually pushing into portions of the mid-Atlantic and the northeast as we finish out the rest of the week. It's a huge storm. Oh, my goodness. I know. I mean, it is winter, Ugh. but we will brace ourselves. Allison, thank you very much. Okay, so the GOP is about to take power in the House, but Kevin McCarthy still does not know if he has the leadership role locked up, what he might have to give up to get it. We are less than three weeks away from a new Congress, but Kevin McCarthy still does not have the votes to be speaker. We'll tell you what he might have to give up to get them. Plus, Brittany Griner is heartbroken that Paul Whelan is still detained in Russia. That's coming from her agent tonight. So what's the U.S. doing to try to get Mr. Whelan home? And then we'll talk about this story. There are identical twins who are accused of cheating on their medical mm -hmm. exams. They sued their school and they won. And wait until you hear their defense. So we're going to talk to a doctor who helped prove their case. I want to bring in now senior political analyst Esther Herndon, senior political analyst John Avalon, and political commentator Margaret Hoover as well is joining us. Let's, let's begin, first of all, with the fact that we are, in congressional terms, days away from a new Congress happening. And yet, on the Democrat side, they certainly have their leadership in place. On the Republican side, McCarthy is not a shoe-in. He's still fighting to get the numbers. I wonder what you make of the fact that he still has an uphill battle, Margaret. Um, I was down in Washington today, had conversations with the Republicans all over, and my sense is, you know, you say we're days away, but in dog years, we're years away. <laughs> and the truth is... We may not know until right around the time of the vote. We may not yeah. know until the day of the vote. Mm -hmm. um, what it demonstrates is something very different is happening in the House of Representatives than is happening in the U.S. Senate. Republicans in the Senate are very organized. They all voted to return Mitch McConnell to leadership. Well, not all of them. Ten didn't. Most, yeah. Ten didn't. But, you know, so the leadership and the organization in the Senate is very fine. It's two types of Republicans. Uh, they're sort of... The, um, <laughs> there's a polite word for the uh, troublemakers in the House of Representatives. And then there's the Senate. So you have two different kinds of the Republican Party on the Hill. And, and the House is unquestionably chaotic, uh, disorganized, and Kevin McCarthy is just 
fighting for his life to, yeah. to get that brass ring. It's ungovernable, let's face it. And so, I mean, basically... <laughs> one of the nice words. Yeah, that's, yeah. One of the, that's one of the nice words. Um, but as Margaret alluded to, the, the uber right-wingers are basically saying that he doesn't have the votes. Yeah. And I think that they want to extract something from him to get the votes. For instance, Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah, yeah, wants some committee... I don't know, chairmanships, or she wants to be on committees, I guess. Yeah. And so uh, is he going to strike those deals? Look, I think he's going to have to because, look, he's only got a four-vote margin on a good day. The big day is going to be January 3rd. We already have more than four votes against him, ostensibly backing you know, Andy Biggs for speaker, which is a non-starter for the caucus, but it's a protest vote. He's still best position, let's be clear, because he's the person who's, you know, can, can basically unite the center and the far right to the extent it's possible. But he's going to have to cut a lot of deals. And those deals are going to weaken his ability to control his caucus. And so what we saw, flick Paul Ryan and John Boehner, where they really could not control their crazy caucus, um, is going to be on steroids for, for McCarthy if he wins. And one of those, you know, deals with the proverbial devil seems to be the idea of saying, look, it's going to be some tit for tat. And... Just as Democrats removed some members of the Republican Party from committees, including one Marjorie Taylor Greene, among others, there is a thought that Kevin McCarthy, if elected to speaker, will do the same. But you have at least one Republican, a moderate, Mm -hmm. Congresswoman Nancy Mace telling CNN that she's going to oppose kicking Democrats off their committee assignments. And I'm wondering, um, of course, would that end the cycle? Are there more Nancy Maces in the and on the horizon about issues like this, or is this essentially what we have to expect, the yeah. tit-for-tat retaliation? I think you have kind of conflicting interests for McCarthy here. You have a base that wants that tit-for-tat, that wants uh, the Republican Congress to really uh, extract almost everything that they can to get back at Democrats for what they perceive happened in the Trump administration. And then you have some moderate Republicans who are especially looking towards the results in November and saying that strategy didn't really work out for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so you have a different incentive base for different sides of the Republican Party. And that's really what's driving this political conflict. I think you're right that McCarthy is still best positioned to be the person who can unite those wings. But the question is, what is he going to have to give up to make that happen? And and, and that very well might be appeasing the kind of tit for tatters. Margaret, let's listen to what Nancy Mace had to say, because I think she's interesting. And I think the fact that she's saying all of this out loud and what she really stands for is helpful. So let's listen to Congresswoman Mace. That effort. I mean, I was. I'm going to be consistent regardless of who's in power. That's really up to voters. Voters get to decide who serves them when they're in Congress, not members of Congress after they've gotten here. Now, I'll support resolutions for people who have been bigoted in their remarks, those kinds of things. But I'm not going to support kicking people off of their committees. I didn't last year, and I won't be doing it again next year. Basically, she was talking about like the Ilhan Omars, who you know are made from by the right to be, you know, the boogeyman, the squad. And she said, I don't support taking them off yeah. their uh, committees. Yeah, First Amendment. Look, one of the things you, you said that was, you said that was constructive thing for her to say, there should be more people like him. Are there going to be more people like her? Um, there are some. And the reason she's saying what she's saying is because she's from a swing district. She's from a district in Charleston, South Carolina, that has basically gone blue for every president in the last, well, every three, I think three cycles now, it's been a blue district in South Carolina, mm-hmm. deep red South Carolina. Um, you get reasonable Republicans from swing districts. Uh, we need more Nancy Maces, more yeah. competitive. Well, seats. then we need to gerrymander less. Yes, we do. <laughs> no, we need more. 
That, that, oh, look, that's singing look, to my husband. That's hard. the <laughs> bottom line here. If we had more competitive districts, less safe seats, we'd have more uh, members of Congress who cared about reaching out to win over the reasonable edge of the opposition and less obsessed with playing to the base. And you see that in Nancy Mace, 100%. But you wonder, though, in terms of, I mean, yes, we should agree that we should gerrymander not at all. Like, not just less, but like we should just stop with the gerrymandering as part of the thing we could possibly do. But thinking about this, I mean, there is an appetite because of what we're talking about. There is the appetite, the perception that they that Republicans have been wronged, Mm -hmm. that Republicans were targeted, that they were canceled unjustifiably, Mm -hmm. that Kevin McCarthy, in order to gain power, is going to have to dilute it by making a number of deals that essentially will make maybe his need to talk to Democrats all the more evident. Does that make the Democrats more powerful and that they will likely be relied upon to bring home what mm-hmm. the outliers do not? I think Democrats are playing with a better hand than they expected going yeah. into this For next sure. Congress, yeah. without question. That is because of the small, the, the small margin that Republicans are going to have. And that matters because of just the wide range of Republicans we're talking about here. But these tensions that are kind of uh, uh, messing with Kevin McCarthy right now, that they're, they're, they're going to play out in Washington on one piece. But there, this really is going to play out as in the 2024 presidential mm. campaign. That is going to be where Republicans kind of sort out just how big that faction is, just how small the Nancy Mace faction is. But it's, until we get I, I, that, I, I, we are not getting I, 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 a really full accounting on that question. I, I want I want to resist I the temptation to skate ahead to 2024 it, when it's it, not that, even 2023. That primary is where that's going to happen. And, and it, yeah, but right. I mean, we got two years of something called governing ahead of us, and we have divided government, which in recent years has been dysfunctional government, but it doesn't need to be. The American people actually would like find ways for the parties to work together, and there are probably that's a right. couple of areas where they could. So we should be talking more about that. They should be talking more about that, too. That is a should, but that has no evidence in this Congress. I think, actually, this has been an enormously productive Congress, especially Mm -hmm. in the last six months. bipartisan margins. But where has it all started? It started in the Senate. It starts in the Senate, so it's a matter of what happens in the House. And what you're talking about is, right, all the deals that Kevin McCarthy is going to have to cut may ultimately undermine his ability to hold on to power. Mm -hmm. Then what? So if Kevin McCarthy is able to put the votes together, how long does he have it? Who governs after that? And then can they do anything with what the Senate sends them? Particularly yeah. if he agrees as part of the deal on this motion to vacate, where they can like get rid of him at a moment's notice. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that they're suggesting. Yeah. Let me, he let me tell you, that. man. Let me tell you. If, 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 if that's the condition by which he gets the speakership, but his biggest problem is a lack of enthusiasm among yeah. his own caucus. Um, Th- that's signing a, your own self-destruct notice. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's absolutely it, it, non-workable, non-governable, non-starter. The well, best no. thing Kevin McCarthy has going for him is that no one else wants the job. The job is hard for a reason, and they do not. And they, the, the person who can put together that caucus, is still that list is still very small. I'm looking and so me. even though he is a wounded speaker or potential speaker going in who's going to have to make up a very tight amount of votes to get that job, what he can say is there is very few people who can get those numbers, even if they're small. Well, you know who was one person today? Of course, Speaker Pelosi, who, mm-hmm. as she has spoken about, including today, you were present yeah. at the White House. She spoke about the idea of how proud she was to have as one of her final acts as Speaker of the House be in support of 
the marriage act. Her, you know, it's really, it was amazing because it was also her first speech in the House when she came to the House of Representatives mm -hmm. was about the AIDS epidemic and, and about these issues because, she, of course, she represented San Francisco. And this is, the LGBTQ community was a huge part of her constituency and, um, and, frankly, her political base from the beginning. So it was a real full circle for her. That's really interesting bookends. But what was it like, Margaret, to be there? You know, I, I just want to say one of the things that has gotten a little, too little attention about this bill today. Um, I stood there on the south lawn of the White House. I had more members of the Jesus Christ Church of Latter-day Saints, the National Association of Evangelicals, the Council on Christian Colleges and Universities, the Orthodox Union, religious organizations across this country supported this bill. Because not only are they in favor of freedom to marry, they're also in favor of what the bill did, which was just restate its position to protecting religious organizations' ability to not have to conduct marriages that they disagree with in their churches and not lose their 501c3 status. That is a fabulous example of how we can reason together in a pluralistic country and have diverse religious backgrounds and groups of people come together for a bill that was supported by Republicans and Democrats alike. This is such a fabulous example of, of progress in this country. And it was a really wonderful part to be, wonderful thing to be part of. It's also, as a Republican. Wait, but it's a also a way, note. though, to, I mean, I, though I hate to damper it, though, but it's also oh. kind of a way oh. to think about taking some of the teeth and bite out of legislation as right. well. The idea of having the exemptions available, it's almost like, hey, the people who are here in support and sewing it tell you it was safe. It was safe to have it out there. That's one of the comments people have but, had about but, not but purely it, codifying but, Obergefell. But you could have that or you could not have the bill. Oh, no, I understand the so, point. I get the politics of it. But, but it didn't take the teeth out of it. Everybody still gets to get no. married. You just say you don't have to be Catholic and force somebody to get married in your Catholic church. Well, that is, this is, no, but here's the deal. Everyone gets As to get you married, know. though, Margaret. But, but they also have to, in some places, leave the state they want to be married in to then go someplace else and have it reciprocally recognized in their home state. And now That's still every there. state recognizes marriage. I understand. I understand. But. It is not the pure codification of Obergefell, which politically it's it, the, didn't, it could not be. But, but that's not because of the First Amendment. That's not because of religious organizations. Frankly, this thing wouldn't have passed if you hadn't had that religious statement in it. Mm -hmm. This is so, and the, so the. Is this called compromise? Progress, yes. Yeah. Progress, not but perfection. A, I think I don't think we're saying something different. That's what we do in a pluralistic society. Okay. Well, there you, well, go. There you go. Thank you. Well guys. done, John Avalon. <laughs> Thank you. Brittany Griner, everyone, is back home, but heartbroken that Paul Whelan is still detained in Russia. Our next guest, next guest says it's great she's free, but he calls the hostage bizarre something that needs to come to an end. We'll discuss next. There's encouraging news tonight about Brittany Griner. Her agent say, says the WNBA star is, quote, upbeat, thankful, and hopeful as she recuperates at an Army Medical Center in Texas. She's now getting physical and psychological support, is spending time with her wife, also eating some barbecue, and hitting the basketball court. Brittany Griner's agent tells Anderson Cooper tonight that Brittany Griner is, quote, heartbroken that Paul Whelan remains detained in Russia. I want to bring in Max Boot now. He's the senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a new column in The Washington Post, and he writes that while it's great that Griner is back home, the hostage bazaar has to close. John Avlin and Margaret Hoover are back with us also. Um, so, Max, when you say the hostage bazaar has to end, meaning prisoner swaps? Yeah, I mean, there have just been so many in recent years, and it's kind of ironic to see uh, former President Trump and his supporters attacking this deal. 
when Donald Trump himself bragged that he was the greatest hostage negotiator in human history. And he made a lot of prisoner he, swaps. He made a lot of prisoner swaps with the Taliban, with the Houthis, uh, with a lot of repugnant regimes. And this has been a trend going back many years now. And, you know, the problem is that each individual case, our hearts go out yeah. to them. We want to see these Americans come home because they are being unjustly detained. The problem is when we are making all these deals, making all these concessions, including letting somebody like Victor Boot, this notorious arms dealer, out of prison to get somebody else who was unjustly detained home, it creates incentives Matt, to seize right, more but, but American I, hostages. I understand, but what's the option? Let Brittany Griner stay in a Russian penal colony? No, no, I mean, I'm very glad that Brittany Griner is out, but I think we need to have a serious debate about whether we want to continue doing this or whether we should say, you know, the State Department has a list of countries where it advises Americans not to travel, including Russia, Iran, Syria, some of the obvious candidates. And maybe at some point we need to have a president who says, okay, I'm going to work to get the people out who are currently in prison. But in the future, if you choose to go to Russia, you are on your own. We are not going to make concessions to get you home. And by the way, I might add, there's still like 30 American basketball players who are still playing in Russia Mm. as we speak. That is not very wise. That is creating the potential for yet another hostage crisis down the road. Well, I think it's fascinating about it is the idea of... and. Some people will ask the question that they'll say, well, and I remember when she was first detained and we first learned about her detention before people realized she was a basketball player there. They would make comments about well, what's someone doing there? Of course, we remember we learned about her during the invasion. She'd already been detained mm-hmm. or questions about this person ought not to travel this place. It's on the do not do not travel area. But your point really is the idea of a well, hold on. If people are intending to do it anyway, they ought not to be able to have the luxury of having the government support them and have their safe return guaranteed. What do you guys think about that? I, I, I respectfully disagree. I understand the point that Max is making. Um, but I, I think that the privileges and responsibilities of American citizenship, of a government to its citizens, don't stop simply because someone has found themselves in an unwise or dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't yet seen the point that Max is making, which is that, you know, if, if you negotiate for, for one hostage, that it creates an incentive to get another dozen. Now, on the surface, obviously, trading someone whose nickname is the Merchant of Death for a WNBA star who was improperly detained is an imbalance. But American presidents, going back decades, as Max points out, have made it a priority to try to get Americans out of harm's way. That's a basic responsibility of the government and the president. Um, and the fact that she was being used as a pawn within the context of, of, of the run-up to the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Paul Whelan still is there. He should be released. But I think we need to celebrate as Americans. What we need to avoid is the kind of situational ethics we see, where Republicans who celebrated every hostage released by Donald Trump condemn this one as making America weaker. It does not make us weaker. Well, no, I mean, I, I, mean, I agree with you. There is massive hypocrisy on the part of Republicans yeah. here. There's no way around that. But I think at the end of the day, there is a legitimate point that these, we- that these hostage swaps do make us weaker. The problem is both parties have done it. It's a bipartisan problem. Yeah. Margaret, what do you think? What do you do? I mean, I, I am willing to give a lot of um, <laughs> leeway to the people who are in the negotiations and who have the intelligence, who know the details about what was being offered between Brittany and, and Paul Whelan. Um, I'm delighted that she's home. Of course, we've been following it. Um, but it, it <laughs> I, I recall President Trump swapped many, many dozens of Taliban prisoners, um, which which struck me as an outrage at the time in order to get Americans back. But you're right. There is this precedent for for American presidents doing what they can in order to get Americans back. Um, I was struck 
frankly, that her statement, that she, she took time in her statement to update the country about how she was, but then to also make note of Paul Whelan, who is still there in Russia. Um, and there has been a degree of criticism about him being left behind and some commentary about that. I wasn't part of the negotiation. I mean, basically, what I, I don't it's know. It's not like Biden obviously, wanted like, to keep going. I mean, there's a lot of opportunism there, obviously, because, I mean, everybody wants Paul Whelan home. But he was captured in 2018 when Donald Trump was yes. president. And now Trump and others are suggesting that Biden did something wrong by not getting him out. Well, why didn't Trump get him out in the Correct. first place? Yeah, mm. great point. Um, friends, thank you very oh. much for talking about all very of this. Interesting. We have to get to this story. Identical twin sisters are accused of cheating on their medical exams. They then sued their school, and they won. And we'll tell you how they proved their case and what makes twins so special as the mother of two. (laughs) Identical twin sisters won a $1.5 million defamation case against the Medical University of South Carolina. Kayla and Kelly Bingham were accused of cheating on their year-end medical exams by the school after earning extremely similar test scores. In fact, the sisters had identical answers to 296 out of the 307 questions on the exam, including getting the exact same 54 questions wrong. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's just, it's stunning. And the question is, how did they prove their case then to allow them to win? Well, they were leaning on a theory that it's common for identical twins to perform similarly on tests. And joining us now is the twins' attorney, James Smith, also with us, the director of the Twin Study Center at Cal State Fullerton, Dr. Nancy Siegel, who also testified in this case. I'm so glad that you're both here. I, I want to start with the research because I think this is fascinating to think about the idea that they could have tested so similarly over time, not just in these exams, but in the SAT, I believe, and other standardized testing. The research you say, Dr. Siegel, actually, it would surprise you if they did not have similar results. Tell us why. Well, that's correct. The vast number of psychological studies, as well as life histories, do show that identical twins perform at an amazingly similar level, even identical twins raised apart from birth. And how do we explain this? Identical twins have similar DNA. They come into the world with the exact same set of genes. And we know from our research studies that genes predispose us toward certain people, places, and events. They underlie the way that we process information, the way that we perform solutions, the way that we solve problems. And so it came as no surprise to me that Kayla and Kelly would perform so similarly on these tests. In fact, I would have been surprised had they not. And for me, the the vital error that was made in this particular case was that when the scores were submitted to a test security outfit, they claimed that the twins scored more alike than they should have given any two other pairs of people. But in fact, they are identical twins. And that was a key factor not taken into consideration. We see these kinds of things all the time. And so these are real hard scientific facts that are supported by a good amount of quantitative data. And uh, but James, it is interesting. You can see why the school would be suspicious. okay? because without all of that background that Dr. Siegel just laid out to get the 296 questions out of the 307, exactly the same answer, including the 54 wrong answers. Of course, that arouses suspicion. And so how hard was it to make your case to the school? 
This is, uh, this is to me, sorry. Yes, yeah, sorry, James. Okay, yeah, no problem. You know, it, it was not hard. It was never a doubt. And it, it's been such a privilege to represent these two courageous young la ladies, Kelly and Kayla, and their desires to make sure this never happens to another uh, set of identical twins ever again. But I knew from the outset, felt very confident in the truth of which they spoke. And really, when you look at their entire life experience, you can see that at every time they've come together to, to take tests where they're in the same room or in a different locations, they performed virtually identical and having getting you know, identical SAT scores. Uh, they've been within a fraction of a point throughout their entire um, academic career. So uh, really the facts spoke for themselves. And even before having the benefit of Dr. Siegel's expert witness testimony and, and the, the, the myriad of uh, tests that have been performed, had a great deal of confidence that the court would see and understand that these they performed exactly as they should. You know, this whole saying that great minds think alike and certainly <laughs> genetically identical minds are predisposed to do that. And of course, this is a defamation case. And so you're thinking about this, James. I mean, you're talking about a reputational harm. And I understand that these two twins, they suffered from having the accusations leveled against them. They actually did not end up pursuing a career in medicine as a result. I know, that part's I mean, that's incredible. Tell me about, I mean, just look at the, the idea of stress, mental anguish, um, panic attacks they've experienced, post-traumatic stress disorder. Tell me about what the impact has been on their lives. Well, this was absolutely devastating. It was a, a circumstance where it should have been kept confidential, but of course, in an environment like this, it, it was not. And even the dean who ultimately overturned the original decision made the recommendation to them that they would be better off if they left the school mm. because it gotten so intolerable for them. Uh, they found that wherever they turned, their story was known across the country and they couldn't find another uh, school to enter despite their remarkable uh, scores in academic history. And ultimately, they, they turned to the law. And as you might imagine, these two very talented young ladies went to law school very successfully. I graduated with high marks, again, within a fraction of a point of each other and, uh, and, I, and within two different sections of the law school. So uh, they took a terrible experience, uh, stood up for themselves, fought for their reputations, had it declared and vindicated in court. And now they're, they want to make sure that uh, the rest of the, the world understands that this is often the case as it comes with mm -hmm. I need to inject something right here and follow up on something that the lawyer so appropriately said. This is not an isolated case. In my career as a psychologist and a twin researcher, I have encountered other cases like this. And I can say that it not only damages the twins' reputations, it creates havoc in a whole family. And it really derails twins who are just trying to perform to the best of their ability. Uh, I think that what is shameful about this is that here you have a fine medical school with outstanding faculty who admitted admitted that they knew nothing about twins. And it seems to me that they should have done their research prior to bringing this case to the testing security outfit. Hmm. Well, Dr. I'm Siegel, very, yeah. Other, I'm just very happy that other twins out there who may be suffering the same kind of accusation will now have a place to turn. And I think that in the past, they simply did not. But with all the research behind us, we're going to help these twins get through some very difficult and uncalled for situations. That's really interesting. Dr. Siegel, uh, James Smith, thank you very much for sharing the story with us. You're right. None of us did know how they could score within a point, you know, or a, uh, a decimal of each other. Really interesting. And yeah. also, it's just um, 
it's sad. I mean, they won yeah. this award. They won 1.5. At but what they gave cost? up their dream, right? At I what mean, cost? it's and you know what? You, you you hear people talk about this, and their initial reaction is always, myself included, when I thought, well, I wonder what they were accused of. People have this image that twins are... And are doing telepathy that they have, you know, there's something's happening in these instances, right? And I and is don't that know so wrong. If they I mean, could I mean, if, if they could, well, we do that. The whole show is done that we're <laughs> actually no fraternal twins. That we're reading fraternal journalistic <laughs> twins. We've we've revealed it here. That's adorable. <laughs> it's the breaking news. <gasps> Listen, everybody. It's yeah. also um, breaking news that there's a place that few people ever want to be. It's the dreaded middle seat on an airplane. But it turns out some people love being stuck between two strangers in a tight space for hours. Hmm. Just who are those people? (laughs) Are we going to meet them next? No. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about them. What's your least favorite seat on a plane? (laughs) Well, Twitter is buzzing over this tweet from Zach Bornstein, quote, Losing my mind, just offered the aisle seat to the guy sitting between me and my girlfriend on a flight, and he said he'd rather stay in the middle seat between us. (laughs) That's awesome. Something else is going on there. It's, It's pretty shocking, right? Well, listen, our friends at the Washington Post thought so, too, especially that story. They're out with an article titled, To the People Who Willingly Chose the Middle Seat, we have questions. And we also have questions, too. Back with us now, I said Herndon, John Avalon, and Margaret Hoover. I mean, who among us doesn't want the middle seat, right? Nobody. I don't Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> no, but it's, it's like one thing. Sometimes you want the middle seat. Like, you're mm. traveling with small children. Yes. It's better to be with your kid rather than to have some. If you know who's the guy the next who wants to? to break up the people <laughs> right. who want to be in the middle That's seat. That's the story. That's no, the but there are other got. people who like the middle seat. This is, these are some people who tweeted. Here's one. This is an awesome one. There have been times when flying during the day, I like the middle seat because I'm a talker. (laughs) That's that's, that's a lot of horrible things in one seat. It's not only do you want to be in the middle seat, you want to talk to me from the middle seat? Absolutely Uh -uh. not. No, that's horrible. That's a rejected Seinfeld episode. (laughs) That's exactly right. Um, Okay, so listen to this. uh, Virgin is offering people inducements to take the middle seat because they know nobody wants it. So tell me if you would take any of this. It's a lottery. Five-night cruise to Tasmania. (laughs) I mean, sure. (laughs) Is that a prize? Yes, it's a prize. Oh, it's a prize. Okay, good. Does it include a flight? Platinum status upgrade. Mm. One million velocity points, whatever that means. You get there there faster. It's velocity. Oh, yeah. You you just shot out of a cannon. (laughs) Free flight for two people for each month of the year. Yes. Yes. Suddenly I want to make this. This is a good lottery. That's the incentive structure we need. Or Virgin can innovate and just get rid of the middle seat. Just yeah. have, have, I mean, how about that, people? Look, Wait, I know. <laughs> you really want to no middle seats? That's the best slogan oh, for an airline ever. No middle seats. Virgin, no, the you're logic, welcome, Virgin. Early of a, outside the pandemic, Delta was doing no middle seats. Right, and right. And that was not the most important thing at the no. time, but I did appreciate and, it. And, and yeah. the reason to take a middle seat is if you're traveling with your child, you want to sort of keep them sort of, of over course. here. And you're, you're Do you buffer. know anything about that? I know a lot no, about I that. I know about that. <laughs> <A little bit. laughs> Oof. Uh-oh. Listen, that's not even how it goes down usually. But, 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 In fact, no, real this, deal. tell us more about how this goes down. <laughs> we, we only care about this segment. This particular. How do the Huvalons travel with yes. small people? 
No, I mean, look, it, 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 people who like the middle seat, that's a peculiar crew. Okay, mm. here's another one. I'm five feet tall and petite. The middle seat okay. is not uncomfortable Fine. for me at all. And I find people walking up and down the aisle to be extremely distracting if I'm trying to sleep or work. So there's somebody who likes the, the window. Seat. Yeah, I was saying there's another option there. The window also exists. Wait a minute, but you could also get a year of lounge access if you take the middle seat. I like that. That's a, that's a winner. I don't know. That's Two nights winner. stay at a luxury resort. How about that? I would take them all, but I like swag. So I would take all of them. But, 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 I, I would take all of them with swag. I, I would, and also, I realized the person who wants to be in the middle was sitting between John Avalon and Margaret Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, you know what? Actually, um, I'll take my chance. I'll, I'll do this. Right. Right. You tell me your story and you tell me yours. That's what happened there. That's Shut it down. <laughs> Shut it down. You know, you know what my pet peeve is? When I'm in the middle seat and somebody has asked for the window, they have the window seat, and they shut the and window. And they close the window. Yeah. I don't know. No, I don't do that. You cannot sit oh. in the window seat and not be willing to take on what the rest of the row wants. Yeah. Well, if someone is- asks, to open up the window. I don't care if you wanted the window closed. You what? need to open up. Except the, the Amtrak, because they have the, the the old school burlap curtains. And so you, if you close it or touch it, it's like touching your face half the time. And that's, oh, is, oh I'm alone? Okay. <laughs> I think, no, I think it's right, a little, that's great. the hygienic right. part of it. it well, that, it's I mean, it's clean, like a burlap. Right? It's wow. A, We're going deep cut here, people. Sorry, sorry. I think the main thing is the people who proactively <laughs> choose the middle seat. Uh, you might want to talk to someone. <laughs> There's, There's a lot of so kind of people out there. The There's a lot of kind of people that don't have one. We'll be right back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talking uh, more that about was the this. joke. Do you get the joke I made? You might want to talk to someone. Tomorrow will mark 10 years since 20 children and six adults were killed in a mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. In a new CNN special report, I revisit the parents who turned their grief that day into power. We look back at their decade-long fight to prevent other families from suffering the devastation that they felt on that awful day. In the one room, I could see first graders, you know, sitting down with crossed legs. And and I kept looking at all the faces, and I didn't see any of Dylan's classmates, and I didn't see Dylan. There's an entire class that has not come out of the school yet. Nicole Hockley kept scanning the crowd for her six-year-old son. I remember just like looking, staring at each one and just not understanding why he wasn't there. People were holding signs um, with classrooms and, and I found someone holding Miss Soto's sign, but it wasn't Miss Soto. And there were just a couple of kids there, including Dylan's reading partner. And I walked up and I said, where's the rest of the class? And I looked down at Dylan's reading partner and she just... Her eyes were like wide like saucers, and she was just staring. And, and I thought, oh gosh, this, this isn't good. Scarlett Lewis was also there, searching for her six-year-old son, Jesse. I remember being told repeatedly, if you can't find your child, go into the back room and put his name down on the list. And I'm like, I'm not going to put my child's name down on a list. I'm just going to find him. I tried to go up to the school. They wouldn't let me. It was surreal, it was frightening, it was, I was just, um, it was hard to process. And at that point, the governor brought everybody into a room in the firehouse. And that's, that's where we got the news. He said that if we were still in that room, that our loved ones weren't coming back. 
the room erupted. It was chaos. There was wailing. There was screaming, yelling. Um, the gentleman who was to my right was on the ground pounding the floor. It was just um, catastrophic beyond recognition. Allison. I know. I mean, I want everybody to know and you to know this is actually a hopeful hour. I know that that is devastating to go back and remember that day. We all remember where we were on that day. But what these families have done, I spent time with these families and I didn't leave feeling drained or depressed or exhausted. I felt I left feeling empowered and hopeful because they did turn their grief into action. And what they will tell you is the changes that have happened in various states and this country over the past 10 years and the actual school shootings that we never report on because they've been stopped right, by right. the things that they've done. So we don't know the names of various little towns because through their actions, they've set up you know, crisis counselors. They've set up hotlines. They know how to stop some of these once the warning signs are shot mm-hmm. off and they've stopped school shootings. So it's actually hopeful. But, you know, it is... Um, so intense to have them have to go back and relive that day as we all will tomorrow. I mean, they treated every other child as theirs as well. I mean, every parent has benefited now from their advocacy. It's tireless. And I think it's such, so poignant and beautiful. I you almost can't believe it's been 10 years. It feels like time froze, but they, they did not freeze in their action. Yeah. They kept going. Don't miss this hour. It's very special. It's called Sandy Hook, Forever Remembered. It begins tomorrow night at 10 Eastern, right here on CNN, and then we'll be on right after that. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.